0: Welcome to Music Made Me, the TuneCore podcast. I'm John Sierra Reineker, and I'm going to be your host on today's episode. Today, we're talking about the Music Modernization Act with Executive Director at NSAI, the Nashville Songwriters Association International, Bart Herbison.
1: Well, my pleasure.
0: So I've received a lot of questions on this act, and I'd like to get right into it. In layman's terms, what is the Music Modernization Act, also known as MMA?
1: Realize it's a brief, simple question, and all of the answers are very long and complicated. (laughs) And I think before you can explain what the Music Modernization Act is and does, you really have to talk about the problems that we have that it fixes. So as briefly as I can summarize, songwriters are paid two kinds of royalties— from streaming music. One is a performance royalty. Another is called a mechanical royalty. The mechanical royalty, until the Music Modernization Act, was set under rules from 1909 that were adopted by Congress to govern player piano rolls. To say they were outdated may be the most massive understatement in history. The performance royalties are paid under two World War II consent decrees administered by the U.S. Department of Justice. The effect of both of those was suppressed rates that were ridiculous. You could have your song streamed millions of times and earn a few hundred dollars if you were the songwriter. Artists earned more. They were under a different set of rules, but it was all too low. So those were the primary things that changed under the Music Modernization Act for songwriters. There were also some things that were fixed, if you will, and when we say Music Modernization Act, they were fixed by modernizing outdated copyright laws or federal regulations. If you were a recording artist, and now here we uh, again get into the weeds a little bit, when people hear a song, they need to understand there are two very distinct copyrights. There's the song itself called the musical work, and then there's the record someone makes of it. It's called the sound recording. Those two copyrights still are under very different rules. And so for the sound recording, the artist who recorded a song before 1972 um, did not fall under federal law protection. And so if their song was streamed, they might not get paid. And in fact, one of the streaming services once upon a time decided to do that and they just not pay you know, artists on records recorded before 1972. This is fixed in that bill. And there's also something a little more complicated. If you're an engineer or the producer of a record, you are paid performance royalties through an organization called sound exchange. And you used to have to obtain a complicated letter of direction from the artist or the record label and, and go through really some legal machinations to get your money. Now, if you do certain things, those royalties will be paid directly to you from sound exchange. So that. It's some of the things, are some of the things that the Music Modernization Act accomplished.
0: Awesome. So let's talk about sort of like the results of this act. Mm -hmm. Do you believe music creators will now be paid more as a result of it?
1: I absolutely believe that. And let's remember that most of the NMA dealt with songwriter royalties. There were some that deal with record labels, but songwriters will absolutely be paid more, in my view, mainly because of the laws that were changed from 1909 and the regulations from 1941. Look, at the end of the day, if we had our way, what we really wish Congress would have done is gotten out of our business, just told the government, you don't get any involvement in setting our rates. But in today's... Capitol Hill, you have to have agreements. And many would not have agreed on that. The streaming companies would never have agreed on that. We really would have had difficulty finding agreement between the two copyrights within the music industry. So what we did agree on was to have these judges look at what the song is worth in the marketplace. That terminology used on Capitol Hill is called willing buyer, willing seller. What would a willing buyer pay a willing seller for the song? And so now the way when judges set those rates, the way they do that has changed. They get to look at what record labels get, and it's way more than what the songwriters and music publishers get for the same song. Um, Another marketplace evidence, so I am convinced that as these proceedings come up and as deals expire, both on the performance and the mechanical side, um, yes, we will get pay raises. It will take some time. The MMA did not change the rates. It changed the way the rates are set to make it much more fair, so I'm absolutely convinced. There's another part of this um, that's a little complicated that's going to save songwriters money. So if I'm a streaming service, let's say Spotify, And I want to license those performance royalties that I spoke about earlier. One of the two royalties songwriters receive, it's relatively simple. I go to the four American Performing Rights Societies, ASCAP, BMI, CSAC, and Global Music Rights. And they issue licenses for all their songs. I write them one check a year, which is based on a percent of revenue and the number of copyrights they represent that have been streamed on my service. And I'm done. They pay the writers. ASCAP, BMI, CSEC, and GMR pay the writers. But to obtain that mechanical licenses, they've got to do it for each individual song. Spotify would have to license something like it's tens of millions of songs. And that's a very difficult prospect. If you get it wrong, Spotify would be committing copyright infringement every time they streamed a song that wasn't correctly licensed. So part of the MMA is the songwriters and music publishers agreed to create a new agency that works like the Performing Rights Societies. We will now administer the mechanical licenses, and they'll pay for it. The streaming companies agreed to pay the cost of that. So typically, when a songwriter or artist receives money, um, a fee is deducted for that service. Um, this time there won't be a fee deducted because the streaming companies will pay for it. So that is a de facto pay raise for songwriters. And look, a lot of songwriters have minimal activity on streaming companies. Maybe they've earned $180 or $600, and they just don't fool with the mechanical licenses. It's easy on the performance side because they join one of those four PROs and they get their money. Now they'll be able to do that. They'll be able to join the mechanical licensing collective and they will get paid. And so that's going to be a pay raise. It won't cost them anything. So um, saving money is as good as earning money, and that's part of the MMA. It's a very important part of it.
0: Got it. When do you believe the music industry will start to feel the impact of this act?
1: I think they already have. The streaming companies are required under the law to look for money they haven't paid that's sitting there. And we're starting to see that. We're starting to see that money being paid out, and I want to compliment them. They're doing a really diligent job of that, as far as I can tell from looking at royalty statements. Um, The performing rights societies, the way they negotiate and set their rates, that's one service at a time over time. So let's suppose I'm one of those four performing rights societies and my deal comes up this year, It expires with Pandora and next year with Amazon and the year after that with Google. They'll be able to negotiate with them. And if they don't like the result of those negotiations, they'll be able to go to a rate court proceeding, a trial, if you will, under those new rules. So service by service over the next several months, I expect we will see increases on the performance side. And then we have another trial for the mechanicals in about three years. I will tell you this, it wasn't part of the MMA, but the mechanical royalties, this is, this is why it's, it's very hard to explain this bill because there's so many parts and the copyright law is very obscure. It's been sort of cobbled together over the past hundred years, but those mechanical royalties, one of the two royalties that the songwriters receive, there's a trial that happens once every five years to consider those. So the National Music Publishers Association and my organization, the National Songwriters Association, won a 44.5% streaming mechanical royalty pay raise that began this this year, started in January of 2019, and there will be an 8.5% raise for five straight years. So we take that. We take the savings for collecting your money that the songwriters will achieve. And then I think performance royalty increases and perhaps another mechanical royalty increase when we get around to that trial again in five years. So it takes time, proceeding by proceeding, uh, company by company, but it will grow.
0: So let's break down this act more thoroughly, again in layman's terms. There are four essential parts of the act, some of which we've already discussed, but let's discuss what each part means. So the first is the use of music by streaming services will now be paid for in a regularized royalty arrangement. The second part is that audio producers and engineers who participated in musical recordings will start to be paid when their recordings are played online or via satellite radio services. The third part is that digital services will now have to pay for their use of songs recorded and released before 1972. And then the fourth part is that there will be a mechanical licensing collective known as MLC, which has been established to collect and pay out royalties from digital services to songwriters, which is expected to be run by a board of directors consisting of 14 board members and three non-voting members. So let's talk about that last bit. Let's talk about the MLC.
1: So first, we have to talk about the process by which the MLC uh, becomes the MLC. Anybody, anybody can try to do that job. It is a wide open process where anybody believes who believes they can license 50 million songs by early 2021 can submit to become a mechanical licensing agency. NSAI, the National Music Publishers Association, and the Los Angeles Songwriters Group, SONA, Songwriters of North America, have been working on constructing our bid to become the NLC for months. This week, we announced our board, and we announced two important committees, the Unclaimed Funds Committee and the Dispute Resolution Committee. We have uh, had a very inclusive process. The publishers picked the publisher seats. The songwriters chose the songwriter seats, and that was announced publicly too many to name because there are 34 of those in total. But it represents the very best of the best in this industry, people that had been in the licensing game, if you will, for a long, long time, and great songwriters who will look after the songwriters' interests We next come up with some basic governance of that body and whoever wants to be the MLC must submit their application to the US Copyright Office and it's due by March 21st. Uh, We have vast industry support. Virtually the entire American music industry um, supported our application when we announced it this Monday. And just go to Mechanical Licensing Collective, search that, and you will find a whole lot more about it. Um, we believe we can do it best, but we, you know, also have an obligation to prove that we can do it best. So the Copyright Office will take comments on all the submissions. I think for about a month, probably through you know late March and April, and then sometime this summer they will choose who the MLC is. Then the MLC will have to hire staff. They'll have to look at the different jobs and parts required to identify the owners of songs, unknown owners of songs, to do licensing, to build a transparent database. And um, the MLC becomes active in early 2021. And every American songwriter can join that at no cost. So we're very, very, very excited about that. I think it's important to note in that in the passage of that bill, I've been working on elements of this bill, and then I say I for 15 years. The very first attempt at this was introduced in 2006 in Congress, and we had several other attempts, and it just we had to get to a time when everybody could find a way to agree on what these changes meant and look like. Um, so we've worked on it for a long, long time. I think there are a few important things I'd like to say. You, I was, I'm often asked what was different this time. I think congressional leadership was different. On the House side, a congressman from Georgia named Doug Collins. And if you've ever seen his story, it will make you cry about how he grew up in the poor little area and songs were his friends and books were his friends. And he always wanted to know about the authors of the books and the songs. And it meant a lot to him. And And he aggressively led this charge in the House alongside uh, – he's a Republican – alongside a Democrat named Hakeem Jeffries from Brooklyn, who's an absolute genius. And they got engaged. And in this time of divisive politics, they found some common ground. And by the way, this bill passed unanimously in both the House and Senate Judiciary Committees, which – by its nature, is one of the most divisive political committees on the Hill and passed both the House and Senate unanimously. So I think it's a testimony to their leadership in the House. Then on the Senate side, you had Senator Sheldon Whitehouse, who was the lead Democrat sponsor, along with Orrin Hatch, who retired, who was a songwriter and understood the challenges of this. And I'm going to give special kudos to Tennessee Senator Lamar Alexander. He personally got parties together to negotiate this, especially as the as the bill got close to fruition. So you, it's really easy in Washington. You've got a whole lot of people that make a whole lot of money opposing things. But we found this time people for something. You know, very different political parties, very different interests in this bill, all trying to do something. And when we did that, it was one of the most remarkable things I've ever seen. And finally, I should say, I think it's important, especially on TuneCore for your audience, to know that there were a couple times we needed the creative community's help to get past some hurdles, and they responded. We had literally over 10.5 million songwriters respond to the call, and uh, songwriters and others, I should say, when we needed them to make their voices heard. And the same thing with artists. And so that was something that I had never seen in the way we saw it this time. And you know what? This country was founded by, we get the copyright in Article One, Section 8 of the U.S. Constitution. It gives you know special, special rights, if you will, for a limited time to authors. And that's because our founding fathers knew that the promise of this country was going to be its ideas. And we got so far away from that for a 100 years, and it just, it just restored my faith that we got back to what our founding fathers intended. Because at the end of the day, while I love and respect all the businesses in the music business, what matters is the person that writes the song, the singer that sings it, and the musicians that play it. And they were heard, and they prevailed. So, yay to all the 10 Corps members because they were huge participants in that process.
0: Awesome. Well, let's backtrack a bit and talk about NSAI. Of course, NSAI was on the front line as an advocate for this Mm -hmm. act. Why was NSAI interested in supporting this act?
1: Well, you have to go back 52 years to our founding. In 1967, there were only um, 80 songwriters in nationals total. And some of the things we changed in the Music Modernization Act frustrated them all those years ago. They wanted to change those laws from 1909. They wanted to change those consent decrees from 1941. So a man named Eddie Miller that wrote the great old country standard, Please Release Me, Let Me Go, went around songwriter by songwriter saying, We've got to form an organization so our voices will be heard. And it was a career risk. You know, there were those that didn't want to see the songwriters organized. But Eddie convinced 41 others, Mary John Wilkin that wrote One Day at a Time and, and many other great songs, and Danny Dill and Ted Harris and Chris Christofferson to form the Nashville Songwriters Association. And their very first issue was just to get the songwriters' names on the records. It happened sometimes, but it was not an industry practice. And it took them the better part of three or four years. And then finally, in around 1970, all of the major record labels and music publishers agreed to work together to do that. And it was very important because then the songwriters knew that if they persisted and worked with focus and if they were right, they could change things. <laughs> the NMA took a lot longer. It took another, you know, 50 odd years. But we were founded to be a group of advocates. The NSAI has grown. We've got about 100 chapters around the world. And we represent songwriters, not all professionals. I would call some semi-professionals. They write great songs. They've done that for years. They perform them locally, but they have day jobs. And we own the world-famous Bluebird Cafe here in Nashville. We put on the world's largest songwriter-only festival called Ten Pan South which is paying homage to Pin Pan Alley, where the American songwriting profession really emerged in New York and um, in the early days of the 20th century. And we do a lot, but we are here to be advocates. And we are governed by a board of 27 songwriters. Our great president, Steve Bogard, who's a, you would know his songs. George Strait's Carrying Your Love for Me and Carried Away and and a whole bunch of those, and our president before that, Lee Thomas Miller, um, were instrumental in the passage of this. We trekked a song. We went to D.C. probably the very last year, 100 days. And every time there were songwriters paying song, uh, playing songs, and those congressional offices reminding those lawmakers about what the founding fathers intended and just reminding them that it deserved fair compensation. So that's the role we play, and we're very proud of it.
0: Shifting gears a bit, if listeners want to learn more about the Music Modernization Act, what resources would you recommend they check out?
1: Well, look, there's so much information about this online. You know, um, you could obviously do that. Um, It's so new that there is much more about how the bill got passed, some of the compromises that were made, some of the fits and starts we went through over the years. Um, there is information that the u s Copyright Office has released about you know the process to choose and use a mechanical licensing collective and then there's stuff on our website as well but it's sort of it 's sort of real time news so I think that 's exciting. You can read the history of how performing rights you know began in this country. Mm. But this is real time. We are, this is happening as we speak and will be happening over the next few years. And so, yeah, there's lots of resources for that, to find out more information. And at the end of the day, when the Mechanical Licensing Collective starts, we're going to put out so much information, people are going to block it. But we should, because it's an amazing new way uh, for songwriters to get their mechanical royalties at no charge, and we're excited about that prospect.
0: So last question. Do you have any final insight to share on the Music Modernization Act?
1: It was historic legislation, but the job isn't done. We still have outdated consent decrees. Now, part of those were changed. The way ICE, Cap, and BMI's judges are appointed, they were appointed for life before this, and I don't think anybody thought that was fair. And so these judges will be rotated, and a new judge will happen every time there's a proceeding. That just seems fair to everybody. As I said earlier, the standards by which the rapes are set change, um, but there's still a lot of work to, to be done. There's still rampant piracy across the globe. I think there has to be a conversation about you know, how songwriters and the music industry compensated on social media and YouTube. The Europeans are a little further down the road than the United States is on that. But at the end of the day, music is one of the largest balance of trade export items in this country. Most of the world's music is American and we're proud of that. And we've got to remember that. And we've got to remember that it's intellectual property that The Founding Fathers asked James Madison to write that section of the Constitution I referenced earlier because they respected his authorship. And so I think we've sort of gotten back to that, and I hope we can take that progress forward and find a balance where creators are fairly paid and customers get to enjoy all the music they want at a reasonable price. That's our challenge going forward.
0: Bart, thank you so, so much.
1: (laughs) It was a pleasure. That's a lot to digest. But look, everybody on TuneCore should know about this because it affects their creations.
0: Well, Bart, thanks for joining us today. Great to have you with us. To our listeners, that's a wrap. Please don't forget to subscribe to Music Made Me, rate us on iTunes, and follow us on social media at TuneCore.
1: Thanks for listening to Music Made Me,
0: the TuneCore podcast. The opinions expressed in this episode are those of the individuals talking and don't necessarily
1: reflect the opinions of TuneCore. Check out tunecore.com to help you distribute your music, register your original songs worldwide, and more. Connect with us on all social channels at TuneCore. Don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe to us on iTunes.